0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like tests, bubblegum and
1: the mantelpiece. Oh, Sam Willis, I've been wanting to do the mantelpiece for ages, Mm. absolutely ages. Uh, So I think think we can get that one lined up, James. At at some point, uh, it's all about the family patriarch holding forth elbow on the mantelpiece it's about disp- I, I won't I won't go on Sam because I w- because we will we will end up doing a, an the entire podcast bit. on the history of the mantelpiece we could also do streets sheets and pleats fleets meats and meats so that's two different types of meats there one is about contact and sociability the other is about carnivorous feasts Um, Mm, However, this is to digress even more monstrously than normal, which is really saying something, because what we will be doing is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of babies, and this was one of our Christmas episodes this year, is in fact all about fictional round robins and David Sedaris. It's about literary depictions of the nativity via John Donne, Christina Rossetti, G.K. Chesterton and, of course, the wonderful John Milton. It's also all about the abandonment and persecution of babies, the material culture of birth and early childhood, from birthing chairs, high chairs and rattles, to portraits and wooden dolls via wolves' teeth and magical amulets. Who knew? (laughs) Who knew? Or who knew that the history of greed is in fact all about the seven deadly sins and Dante's divine comedy it's about francis bacon's essay of riches it's also all about feasting and christmas at the court of henry the 8th and it's about the history of eating competitions it's also all about bernard mandeville and bees which is topical one might think god ah, is coffee drinking things. and balzac who knew who knew <laughs> <laughs> i did enjoy that one greed
0: yeah. Yes, we should them um, we should come come back to um To human weaknesses again. I think it was a very interesting topic. You're probably all wondering who uh, my fellow presenter is. Let me say if history were a flower brimming with the nectar of the past this man would be the hungriest, the cleverest, the busiest of all the bees lapping up that sweetness of history and then pollinating the present for the benefit of all mankind and all bee kind. The man who knows how to be kind to the past more than any other. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. I've
1: I've lost my buzz, I think, uh, as a bee, but I feel like a a sort of a burdened worker bee at the moment. I'm Mm. I'm, uh, far too busy, far too busy to be humanly possible. But you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping worker bee Daybell co-pilot this very episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a bee related historian he'd only be the beekeeper king of the past all dressed in protective clothing to protect him from the stinging comments of (laughs) hornet-like historical critics armed with a puffing smoke canister ready to make drowsy those hive workers of history so deft and quick is he to lift the lid of the archival hive of the past, to access those honeyed facts that make up his own historical swarm. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous <laughs> historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. No, Hello, I, went to ta- I went to town there. I was particularly pleased with the puffing smoke canister ready to make <laughs> drowsy those hive workers of history. Or stinging comments of Hornet-like historical critics, which those of you who have ever submitted uh, either a grant application or ordained to try and get some, get an article published in a learned tome uh, will know exactly what those Hornet-like historical critics can be like. I, I Do you know
0: what? I'd forgotten about this and it just come back to me. I, I wrote an article when I was uh, just finished my master's on... Um, on uh, funding for historic vessels. And I think somebody body had just been publicly funded. And um, I found the um, kind of the committee uh, minutes of that funding meeting. And I wrote an article explaining how actually, although it might seem that because this, uh, this committee had been funded, that everyone was behind the idea that actually, if you looked at the, at the minutes of it, uh, it was more... Um, more split and there were various different ways that you could think about um, funding historic vessels from the future I was just uh, opening opening up um, a can of worms which someone else had tried to close and I wasn't doing it from a political point of view I was doing it merely to demonstrate how valuable minutes were uh, as a historical as a historical source for something that was actually quite contemporary anyway um, it was it was condemned and I was viciously stung as if I was someone trying to make a political point which I wasn't and I was being extremely balanced and historical about it I remember I still remember thinking how grossly unfair the entire thing was and I was just a young student um, making a point about funding of historic vessels, so there you are, James. We, Gosh, we, should, we
1: should we should do the history of thick skin, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I think being, being thick-skinned, I think, is, is getting... one of the most important things that are uh, calluses. Uh, <laughs> yes, <is>. exactly.
0: <laughs> Corns. But there, did you know why we're doing <laughs> this? We're doing
1: the history of bees. I don't know whether we've told our lovely listeners that yet, but we're doing the history of bees. Partly, it's all down to me because I read the most brilliant article in, of all places, the Economic History Review uh, by a brilliant historian called Alexandra... Zapoznik, uh, who works at King's College London and the title of this is Bees in the Medieval Economy, Religious Observance and the Production, Trade and Consumption of Wax in England circa 1300 to 1555. This led me to want to do the History of Bees and I will be talking a lot more about that uh, later on Sam Willis.
0: Ah interesting, um, I was very excited about this actually um, when I wrote my book on the Admiral Benbow, um, there was a really interesting bit um, in the middle of his life where he's living in London, he stays in a fancy house, and they've got a glass beehive, and um, from that moment on it really struck me. I don't know anything about beekeeping, but I knew then enough to know that having a glass beehive was a symbol of status. I think it was only um, this chap's house he was living in under the king. They were the only two in the entire country, but it obviously allowed people to observe what was going on with bees. And there was obviously so much interesting stuff going on there, whether it's the science of beekeeping, um, the metaphors of beekeeping. Well, I found that fascinating um, because they are such a um, an interesting, gregarious and social insect. Uh, that unsurprisingly many people have uh, studied them in the past and used them as metaphors for human behaviour. And that itself uh, is an interesting fact from history, but of course that itself has its own history. And the way that people have interpreted that um, for their own uh, their own beliefs changes throughout time. Um, very, very interesting indeed. Um, I also have... Um, I'm interested in candles and light. And have been for many years. and um, that made me think about uh, obviously the beeswax was used. And you when you're thinking about bees in the relationship with humans, you need to open up your mind to the completely staggering array of benefits that bees provide to humanity. So actually, I'm just going to start briefly, James, by talking about that, because um, rather than take a single specific example and to illuminate uh, the past that way, I wanted to do the opposite and um, just talk briefly about just how influential bees were in society. And then that will, I hope, allow you to all think about the many and varied ways that you could study this in the past because every single one of these will have its own interesting history. First, well, that of all, sounds that sounds a fab way to start, Sam. Yeah, first of all, um, pollination. Um, so I, I've been looking into this a bit, and cereals. So a lot of the cereals we will uh, we eat and have been eaten over the past are wind pollinated, but there is an immense amount. Which is uh, pollinated by insects, and by far the most efficient of those are honey bees, um, so fruits, vegetables, herbs, apples, plums, raspberries, cherries, cabbages, carrots, cucumbers, mint, dill, mustard, marjoram, flax, and buckwheat. <laughs> just just for some those all hugely benefit from the action of bees. And I came across a really interesting article talking about. Um, Russian life in the 15th and 16th centuries and this um, all of these things that I'm talking about here are directly related to um, to, to Muscovy um, to a fascinating period in imperial Russia um, but of course you can apply this much more broadly um, so not only if you have bees and you care for bees do you enjoy a wider range of foods which has a broader nutritional range um, but you also get access to the honey and the wax. And, I mean, in terms of historical significance, I, I don't think you could get anything sort of more significant. So uh, the... The, the wax is used for making candles and candles of course give you light and that allows you to read it allows you to learn in the darkness it, it creates the uh, more time for learning and that allows humanity to improve and creating of books as much as anything else um the, the wax can be used for waterproofing clothing and footwear for um making furniture and floors nicer for protecting them for protecting iron from rust um so this isn't just about the medieval period you could uh, you can you could apply it to the um, the period of the Industrial Revolution as well um, ships ropes are protected from rot uh, as well using this kind of wax um, textiles very important they're crucial for for needles and thread for for sewing for dyeing Um, It's very important for art, for binding pigments to paint and for painting surfaces, uh, for making models and decorative objects. Uh, That in itself is really interesting. If you think about how a lot of the most exquisite objects that have been made in history they're made by something called the lost wax process which I'm going to talk a little bit about in the future James um, they're used for seals on documents I'm sure you can tell us uh-huh. a bit more yes, about indeed. that um, but the lost wax process you're making these wonderful uh, wonderful decorative objects from you know the most exquisite jewellery to cannon. Um, so you know that's how how uh, uh, important they are and uh, wax is for society um food, drink, preservatives, medicine, cosmetics it's all there, um, and the medicine's particularly important because uh, honey um, and bee pollen um, it's it's naturally antiseptic um it's antibacterial it's antiviral it's antifungal so hopefully that will have just blown your mind so all of the ways in which you can see the impact of bees on societies in the past, and every single one of those has its own history. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
1: Oh, Sam Willis, that's extraordinarily good and so varied <laughs> and vibrant and also connects really well and cleverly with exactly what I was going to talk about, this brilliant article by Alexandra Sapochnik, uh, called Bees in the Medieval Economy. And what it does there is it links wax candles that are derived from beeswax to doctrinal changes in the medieval world. Now one of the things that I think is important to uh, start with is th- thinking about wax candles and the alternative to beeswax is of course tallow which is animal fat. But the reason that wax from bees becomes so crucial for religion is that bees themselves are seen to be connected to chastity and virginity and they are you know they're really potent religious symbols in medieval christianity so they are they are associated with christ and mary and as we as we see a move towards what is described as a christocentric form of religion so it becomes increasingly important to use those candles that are derived from beeswax that are seen as pure, so that that's absolutely central to this. So the demand for beeswax and therefore the demand for the production of bees, you know, of, and looking after bees and caring for bees, and beekeeping rises over the medieval period. But if we start with this idea of the image of the bee, we can see that connected to imagery of Christ and the Virgin Mary in the uh, medieval church. So, for example, the fourth century, uh, St. Ambrose wrote that Christ was virgin born like a bee uh, and that he described this, the heavenly bee, while Mary was virginal like the bee. And so this is where we get this sort of connection between this association of bees and virginity and therefore the importance in religious services. This is also when we have the emergence of a whole range of services that are associated with light. If you think about the Feast of Purification of the Virgin Mary, this was known as Candle Mass, and wax was brought into the church and was blessed um, and brought before you know an image of, of Mary. And there are all sorts of services where candle wax would have been used throughout this period. So basically what we see is that there is a real intersection of um, religion, the economy, the environment and religious culture in this pre-modern world that hinges on the bee and beeswax, and the article is is brilliant in the way in which it analyses the economics of of wax. I mean, first one of the first things it does is it tries to look at the demand for wax candles in churches, um, and then it looks at in large. Uh, religious houses and then it looks at, at private houses it looks at things like the court and then it looks at where these might have come from so it looks at the demand for foreign uh, wax and one of the main sources is the Hanseatic uh, countries so the eastern and southern Baltic where if you think about the geography there, uh, the forests you know, are excellent in terms of the kind of conditions for Uh, bee colonies so there this is one of the places where wax is a principal export in addition to things like wood and metals and and furs coming from that region but also that there's probably an awful lot of domestic beekeeping and wax production and you can pick this up in a very sort of piecemeal way. Um, One of the problems when you're trying to estimate this kind of economic history in the medieval period, is that you're using really imperfect sources. Um, but it's fascinating the way in which a picture is built up of the demand for wax. And I want to start by thinking about the demand in parish churches, Um One of the things about England in the medieval period is that there is a really dense concentration of parish churches. So it's estimated that there are about 9,000 parish churches which exist by the early 13th century. So if you think about all of these churches needing to have candles... For various ceremonies and mass throughout the year, mass by itself meant that you needed to have two candles on the altar to be burnt, and actually having those was enough you know demand uh, on a, a sort of a local parish and If you have a look at the church wardens accounts, there are continual payments going out for wax and wax candles and if you think about the kinds of fundraising that goes on. In the church, things like the church ales, for example, you know, where, where ale would be drunk and sold in within the church, and various other things, the kinds of work that guilds do. A lot of this is in order to pay for the, for the, these kinds of candles, you know, for for use in in mass, and it's estimated that something like in the church of Saint Margaret in Westminster. Uh, Between 1474 and 1476, some £96 of wax were purchased simply for the rude lights. In other words, those were the lights that surrounded uh, the image of Christ on the cross. And there were even, within churches, special wardens employed to look after candles. Um, So there's an awful lot of stuff, that an awful lot of... um, you know, work that sort of goes into to this. Candles are also associated with with death, and people would pay to have candles bought to be lit on the anniversary of their death. Or one very wealthy woman uh, called Margaret Brayfield, who uh, in 1487 left a hundred pounds, which is an extraordinary amount of money. She left a hundred pounds. Uh, for a 20-year period uh, at which she required a requiem mass and 13 wax torches weighing 13 pounds each to be burned on the anniversary of her death. And then the the unburnt pieces of the candle were then sent to uh, religious institutions afterwards. So there's an incredible pent-up demand here. And there are various sort of estimates that are made for... You know, looking at the basic amount of wax that you would need within a parish church annually. And it's estimated that if you tot all this up, that some 159,000 pounds of wax would have been consumed uh, by the most rudimentary Christian observance in parish churches. So this is just basically the baseline. Um, we also then need to think about all of the other uses that churches, parish churches, might have put candles to, and 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 the article argues that basically English churches were simply ablaze with light. Lights would be all over the altar and the rood and the rood screen and the cross and images, you know, and and, and additional candles for feast days, additional lights for parishioners. So actually, that baseline estimate is really low and what this means then is that the demand for wax feeds into beekeeping and what we see is a real sort of rise in beekeeping across the medieval period and one of the most interesting sources for um, medieval bees is a 10th century Byzantine account of farming, which is fascinating, one best, um, it, it's one of the best. It's one of the best sources for looking at bees and beekeeping, and it's a it's a, a, a tract called Geoponica, and I just want to read you some extracts of it here, Sam. The bee is the wisest and cleverest of all animals, and the closest to man in intelligence. Its works is truly divine and of the greatest use to mankind. Its social life resembles that of the best regulated cities. In their excursions, bees follow a leader and obey instructions. They bring back sticky secretions from flowers and trees and spread them like ointment on their floors and doorways. Some are employed in making honey and some in other tasks. The bee is extremely clean. Settling on nothing that is bad-smelling or impure, it is not greedy, it will not approach flesh or blood or fat, but only things of sweet flavour. I think this is sort of part and parcel of this idea of the purity of bees. It does not spoil the work of others, but fiercely defends its own work against those who try to spoil it. Aware of its own weakness, it makes the entrance to its home narrow and winding so that those entering in large numbers to do harm are easily destroyed by the guardian bees. This animal is pleased by a good tune. When they are scattered, therefore, beekeepers clash cymbals or clap their hands rhythmically to bring them home. This is the only animal that looks for a leader to take care of the whole community. It always honours its king following him enthusiastically wherever he goes, supports him when he is exhausted, carries him and keeps him safe when he cannot fly. This presumably is the queen bee that is figured as as male here. It particularly hates laziness... Bees unite to kill the ones who do no work and use up others' production. Its mechanical skill and near logical understanding is shown by the fact that it makes hexagonal cells to store honey. And then it goes on about a description of beehives. One cubit wide and two cubits long and rubbed on the outside with a kneaded mixture of ash and cow dung so that they are less likely to rot. And so it goes on. And one of the interesting things is in the, it also adds about how to collect honey. And one of the things with collecting honey is that the bees actually feed on the honey and that's what keeps them alive. So the, this, this tract basically says that, that if you don't take away all the honey because otherwise, and I quote, the bees are angry and stop working. Instead, what it suggests is leaving a tenth of the produce during the first two harvests and two thirds uh, before winter. Um, it's also it's also interesting that it adds a um, it adds sort of instructions for how you should collect honey including uh, using smoke from cow dung to drive off bees and recommends smearing oneself with the juice of the male wild mallow. And there's another uh, recipe that's given. Uh, Take flour of roasted fenugreek, add the decoction of wild mallow with olive oil so that it is the consistency of honey. Anoint the face and bare skin with this thickly take it into the mouth and blow into the beehive three or four times. So there we are, Sam. We have medieval bees. We have knowledge of beekeeping, how to collect the honey. And then, importantly, we have the connection between bees and the medieval economy, but also the way in which beeswax candles, because of the bees' purity, are associated with changes... In medieval religious practice and devotion, goodness hmm. me, there is high-blown stuff for you, Sam Willis.
0: It's great, isn't it? It's it's so complicated as well, and I love the, this idea of, of bees being associated with virginity, and this is all because of the fact they didn't, they couldn't work out where bees came from. Yes, um, they didn't understand it, and it's a, it was it's a um, it's a it's a failure of empirical observation, I think you can say, um, because that the the sexual intercourse between a queen bee and a drone is genuinely difficult to see it, it takes place often like 40 meters up in the air and only once or twice a lot for a, in a lifetime for each queen and it was only documented at the end of the 18th century so that might be one of the clues as to why they had those glass beehives in the 17th century because they still couldn't although they, they were doing these wonderful things and you know building st paul's or whatever it might be in the middle of london they still didn't know where bees came from um, which I thought was absolutely fascinating, and they also didn 't know and they couldn 't agree on the sex of um the sex of the bees and you you were talking there briefly about how they thought that the um the the person in charge was a male, and you 've got all these patriarchal societies all ruled by kings uh, who all think that the queen bees a king, and that is one of the interesting things you can you 'd find when you study the way that the um bees' society are is interpreted in terms of uh, community, uh, discipline, labour, uh, and chastity as well, because they think they're not having sex, and they also think that the, that a man's in charge, which I, I think is really interesting. Then there are all changes when they they finally work it all out. Um, but it was it's one of the reasons in the eighteenth century that that the symbol of the bees becomes associated with male kingship, and they're seeing. Um, they're seeing something quite interesting uh, in the activities of the bee and in their characters, which they think they can apply to kingship. So um, Louis the Twelfth of France, his emblem um, changes from a porcupine to a bee in or bees at the end of the 1500s. And it's particularly associated with mercy and with control of violence. Um, So they believe that the bee with a sting, uh, which is the queen, has to be a man because it's a weapon of war. And that's a belief that actually goes back all the way to to Aristotle. Um, And so what they do, they believe is that is that there is a male bee with a weapon of war, with a sting, but he never uses it. Therefore, is demonstrating constraint, control and mercy. And that's why it becomes a symbol of kingship in the 1600s there's a little description here I just want to end with from 1602 um, uh, from a book called De Animalibus Insectis and it was published in Bologna in 1602 and this gives you a sense of of how they think bees uh, are created where they come from Uh, and it's a chap here um, who's done an experiment i refer to something new never heard of or at least seen nor recorded by any writer that i know of for once when i had captured a drone and squeezed its middle with my finger and nail to see if it admitted some kind of a sting the body broke and there suddenly emerged out of the skin of the bottom half a skilfully formed white or yellow head of an ox which spread out twisting horns and a muzzle bent inwards. People came to admire this thing exceedingly, and for this reason entreated me to test out again another time, for which reason I squeezed a further five drones in turn, and as before the same head of an ox always emerged. So through the drones, nature, which rightly takes great care over the bee, reveals wonderfully in this portent their origins, in what way lost bees should be at last, restored. So what they're doing is, um, there's a really interesting passage there. So it explains about his belief in modern scientific inquiry, how you should repeat an experiment, how you should do it in public to verify its results. But at the same time, I mean, that's very, very modern. uh, But at the same time, his conclusion is one of the oldest notions uh, from that period in that location is that Bees were generated spontaneously out of rotting ox
1: carcasses.
0: Ooh. A
1: great deal to think about, James. <laughs> Gruesome. Gruesome. I shall, I shall ponder on that this evening. It's so good. I want to end on something sort of slightly different from that, which is the mythology of telling the bees. And this was something that I came across last night when I was squirreling around doing some, some reading in, around the mythology of bees. And this ref, rela- refers to a traditional custom throughout Europe where people would tell bees of particular events particularly deaths but also marriages and births and there are a couple of places where I found reference to this there's a book uh, published in 1902 by Samuel Adams Drake a book called uh, A Book of New England Legends and Folklore now listen to this there's a little section in here called telling the bees. Respecting bees, one very old superstition, among others, is, as I can strictly affirm, still cherished, surviving, apparently, through the peculiarity of the mind which, the extent being uncertain, elects to give it the benefit of the doubt. Rather, than to discard it as a childish and meaningless custom. Goodness me, what a flatulent sentence that is. Um, I, there's, <laughs> it has, there is no point to it. <laughs> um, this is the common belief that bees must be made acquainted with the death of any member of the family. Otherwise, these intelligent little creatures will either desert the hive in a pet or leave off working and die inside of it. The old way of doing this was for the good wife of the house to go and bang the stand of the hives with black and usual symbol of mourning, she at the same time softly humming some doleful tune to herself. Another way was for the master to approach the hives and rap gently upon them, When the bee's attention was thus secured, he would say in a low voice that such or such a person mentioning the name was dead. This pretty and touching superstition is the subject of one of the Whittier's home ballads. So there we are. We're seeing that practice in New England. But I also found reference to it in a brilliant book that I've just ordered, Uh, I've just ordered *Histories of the Unexpected*. A copy of uh, *The Mm. Penguin Guide to the Superstitions of Britain and Ireland* by our friend Steve Rowd, he of the English Year fame, and he relate—he's got lots of evidence from English folklore about telling bees to do with with mourning. And there are all sorts of things that he's gleaned out of local sort of record society volumes and notes and queries. And here's one from what seems to be Nottinghamshire notes and queries from 1869. About 30 years ago, it reads, an old woman in my parish told my wife that her bees had died a circumstance which she attributed to her having forgotten to tell her bees of the master's death. I mentioned it recently to my nurse, and asked her if she had ever heard of a similar custom. She said yes, and that she herself, having lost her bees on the death of her first husband, was told by her neighbours, that this had happened because she had neglected to tell the bees of her husband's death. She further said that in her village it was the custom on the death of the master or the family not only to inform the bees but also to give them a piece of funeral cake together with beer sweetened in sugar. Those lucky bees, that's all I can say. And there's another uh, reference from Oxfordshire in the 1880s. Uh, And this records reciting a set phrase. On the evening of the day Twister died, Edmund saw Queenie come out of her door and go towards her beehives. She tapped on the roof of each hive in turn, like knocking at a door, and said, Bees, bees, your master's dead, and now you must work for your missus. I'd have put for for your missus instead, because that would have rhymed. But, you know, clearly that was not the case, Sam. Um, then seeing the little boy, she explained, I had to tell them, you know, or they'll all have died, poor little creatures. And I want to leave you with one final uh, report that comes from Derbyshire in 1895. When a bee master dies... Tins containing funeral biscuits soaked in wine are put in front of the hives so that the bees may partake of their master's funeral feast. Two kinds of funeral cakes are used, namely biscuits and, in quotes, burying cakes, the latter only being given to the poor. The bees always have the biscuits and not the burying cakes. At Eam in Derbyshire, a portion of the burnt drink and of the three-cornered cakes used at funerals is given to the bees of the deceased beekeeper. Sometimes pieces of black crepe are pinned upon the hives. It is said that the bees must be told of their master's death or they will all die." What's fascinating here is not only the superstition that relates to bees, but also the fact that the bees are such a valuable commodity that they are tied up with this sort of these superstitious beliefs and these practices to keep them thriving because they're so part of the local domestic household economy so there we are sam telling the bees telling the bees i love that very much indeed guys i hope you've all enjoyed
0: our episode on the history of bees uh, we're coming back soon with more and if you want to catch up and uh, to find out what we're doing, what's coming your way, do please follow us on social media. I'm at Doctor Sam Willis, And if you're interested in maritime history, the history of the sea, which you should all be, do please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast.
1: And you can follow me on Twitter, at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast, at UnexpectedPod. You can also befriend us on social media. We are on Instagram, so check us out there. We're also on Facebook. Likewise, uh, friend us there. Uh, leave us a... Uh, a review on itunes because that is always really helpful for keeping the podcast going check out also our website historiesoftheunexpected.com. and last but not least if you want to become a patron of histories of the unexpected head over to patreon.com where you can find our patreon page anything that you can do to help support what we're doing to change the way in which people think about the past would be very much appreciated but meanwhile have a good week take care and be well